Hello and welcome to episode 23 of the Karma Sense Foodcast. I'm Davey H. and this is the Chazarai episode. The fact that you're listening to The Who does not mean you've tuned into another episode of CSI Food Nerd. But The Who is relevant, and fighting for your meals may or may not be relevant. This is the Chazarai episode. In the Yiddish language, Chazarai is food that's awful, but it has an alternative meaning of stuff. And that's what we talk about in this episode. Lots of stuff. I go on a long rant about meat scaremongering from the other Who the World Health Organization. The details of this will interest a lot of you. For those not interested in the minutiae, it's a great case study on the importance of the details when reacting to nutrition information. Then I get into some listener questions, such as, how do I not screw up my nutrition if I am scared of meat? What's the deal with apple cider vinegar? Instead of worrying about meat, should I be afraid of bread? And we cover a lot more too. And since you'll be listening to me a lot this episode, I'll shut up so you can listen to me. Mantra number two of the Karma Sense Eating Plan advises you to eat protein in every meal. The Karma Sense Eating Plan is an inclusive lifestyle that makes no value judgments about what you eat as long as it's not poison. Therefore, red meat has full citizenship as a source of Karma Sense protein. So, how does the plan reconcile this against a recent announcement from the World Health Organization that red meat is probably a carcinogen? The way I see it, I have several choices. Number one, I could jump on the healthy lifestyle militia bandwagon and start preaching the evils of red meat. Number two, I could side with the meat industry and the politicians they own and deny, deny, deny. Three, I could take the politician thing one step further and out the WHO as yet another blue-helmeted organization under the United Nations umbrella. The same United Nations that underhandedly used a repurposed version of the Americans with Disability Act to criminalize homeschooling. Which is total bullcrap, but some people still believe it. Or number four, I could provide a reasoned analysis of the announcement and its implications. Surprisingly, I'm going with number four, reasoned analysis. The announcement's misleading and lacks context. Moderate consumption of red meat is a karma sense avenue towards better health and perhaps happiness, but maybe not world saving. And don't confuse me with some paleolithic meat defending zealot. Red meat is not an essential part of the diet. As long as you manage your overall nutrition, there's no downside to reducing or eliminating the red meat in your diet. It's a quest I'm constantly on. So let's get into that context, and then you can make your own informed choice. Do what you gotta do, brah! We'll get started with some background on the organizations making these claims. Who are these people? The World Health Organization, or WHO, or WHO, is an agency within the United Nations that focuses on international public health. It's credited with eliminating smallpox, and more recently had a prominent role in fighting the Ebola crisis in West Africa. 
the International Agency for Research on Cancer, or IARC, or IARC, is a sub-agency within the WHO that, among other things, publishes and maintains lists of known carcinogens. IARC assigns substances to different groups depending on the strength of evidence that a substance causes cancer. These levels are Group 1, carcinogenic to humans. Group 2A, probably carcinogenic to humans. Group 2B, possibly carcinogenic to humans. Group 3, not classifiable as to carcinogenicity in humans. And Group 4, probably not carcinogenic to humans. In this announcement, processed meats were assigned to Group 1, carcinogenic to humans, while red meat is a Group 2A carcinogen, probably carcinogenic to humans. Other than more details of what types of meat are included and some confusing statistics, this is the crux of the announcement. There really is no further context provided by the WHO or from IARC. Well, great. Saying something is carcinogenic has a pretty clear meaning to most people. But what the heck does probably mean? What is it about red meat that makes IARC say probably instead of possibly? What is someone like me, who sucks at reading between the lines, supposed to do with that? Now, the IARC places substances on any one of those five lists based on the strength of evidence that it causes cancer. They assign processed meats to group one because there's enough historical and continued evidence to link processed meats to colorectal cancer. They assigned red meat to group 2A, and I quote, based on limited evidence that the consumption of red meat causes cancer in humans and strong mechanistic evidence supporting a carcinogenic effect, unquote. They use the term carcinogenic effect when the link to cancer is not strong enough to say a substance actually causes cancer. So, to put it another way, IARC is saying that for red meat, there is strong evidence of weak causation. Are you confused yet? Well, the news media clearly understood what it means. What was their reaction? Well, forget those media psychos. Besides, mother always told me red meat was good for me. Who's right? Well, if you were to ask me for a list of top 10 things to do to upgrade your diet, eating less meat would almost definitely appear on the list. But you're not in, and so I hedge by adding the word almost. Meat is not an essential part of the diet, regardless of its color. With a few adjustments, all the nutrition your body needs to thrive can be obtained from plant-based sources. However, some animal products are especially good vehicles for specific nutrients. Furthermore, some people get so much enjoyment from eating meat that removing it from the diet just isn't realistic. Why bother to make dietary recommendations if they're going to be ignored? I can't tell you how many memes I've seen on social media that equate to, I'll give you my bacon when you pry it from my cold dead hands. If you're part of this must-eat-meat group, here's what you need to take away from the IARC's decree. And it's really just one word. And that word is context. First, we have the group context. IARC has those five different groups, and there are over 900 substances that they've classified. Processed meat is assigned to group one, and red meat to group 2A, based on the strength of evidence that each cause cancer. 
What the IR doesn't do is talk about how much processed or red meat you need to eat to get cancer, nor does it give context as to what conditions affect your chances of getting cancer. Processed meat, for example, is assigned to the same group as some highly lethal stuff, including arsenic, mustard gas, and neutron radiation. Think of the impacts on history if instead of dropping the atomic bomb on Hiroshima, we drop Slim Jims. On the other extreme, sunlight's also in the definitely causes cancer group. And it's true, excessive exposure to sunlight does cause cancer. But so can excessive avoidance. Sunlight's a primary source of vitamin D, and vitamin D deficiency is linked to many types of cancer. It seems we can't win. Group 2A is similarly dysfunctional. Red meat is in the same club as ultraviolet light, and ultraviolet light is the cancerous part of sunlight that's in group 1. Nitrates are also in group 2A, but they're the most cancerous part of processed meat that's in group 1. What the f***? This is like saying, I love the Star Wars series, but Jar Jar Binks is awful, so I can never watch it. Listen, I can spend as much time tearing apart the logic of the IARC lists as I can harping on National Food Days. By the way, I'm recording this on January 24th, which is National Peanut Butter Day. And peanuts contain traces of aflatoxins, a group 1 carcinogen. Of the 900 substances classified by IARC, only one, caprolactam, a precursor to nylon, is assigned to group 4, meaning it probably isn't carcinogenic. So, feel free to eat all the stockings and parachutes you want. According to the IARC, you probably won't get cancer. Next we have the item context. Most of the individual items on any of the IARC lists have a specific composition. Vinyl fluoride is a group 2A substance with the chemical formula C2H3F. Red meat has no chemical formula. It's made up of hundreds of different compounds, including H2O. So why not put water on the list? The fact is that there are certain components in red meat that are more dangerous depending on the context in which they're consumed. The cancerous capabilities of these compounds are often enhanced when meat is processed, which is one of the reasons why processed meat gets a more severe rating than their less processed versions. I put an article from examine.com in the show notes that talks about these details better than I could. Unfortunately, it lacks the highbrow poopy jokes that you get here. One last <clears throat> beef I have with the individual items on the IARC list is how they define red meat. According to IARC, red meat is, and I quote, the muscle tissue from mammals, including beef, veal, pork, lamb, mutton, horse, and goat. Unquote. Well, the E-I-E-I-O part isn't part of the quote. Anyway, there's no further distinction. As far as the IARC list is concerned, a Big Mac and a piece of lean, organic, grass-fed beef is the same thing. How about the research context? The association between processed meat and chronic disease is indeed strong. There's research that links processed meat to high blood pressure, heart disease, respiratory disease, and of course cancer. It's important to note, however, that this association does not prove that eating bacon-wrapped hot dogs will give you cancer. For me personally, this evidence is strong enough and my craving is weak enough that I'll avoid processed meats other than the occasional strip of bacon. Situation is different with red meat. This is why the IARC put red meat in group 2A. The evidence linking red meat and chronic disease, including cancer, gets weaker all the time. 
In the show notes, I point to a study that found a link between processed meat and heart disease, yet was unable to prove any link between red meat and heart disease. And about a year ago, an extensive meta-analysis concluded that the association between red meat and cancer is also insignificant. And note that meta-analyses, the systematic review of all available research, is considered the gold standard of science. Again, from my perspective, the nutrition and enjoyment I get from eating red meat a few times a week outweighs the known risk. Next, we have the context of quantity. How much? We all know that too much of a good thing is usually bad for you. This is true with processed meat, red meat, and even broccoli. And anyone who doesn't think too much broccoli is bad for you hasn't spent the night with me in bed after I've overindulged. Sorry, Mrs. H. The real question is, what's the minimal effective dose that causes harm? To be <coughs> frank, <coughs> I have a million of them. Anyway, to be frank, nobody knows, but here are some considerations. The IARC announcement makes the following odd statement about processed meat. Quote, each 50 gram portion of processed meat eaten daily increases the risk of colorectal cancer by 18%, unquote. And I have to admit, I have no idea what that means. Let's try and break it down anyway. 50 grams is about two strips of bacon, Ooh, bacon, or a little bit more than one hot dog. Does that mean with every two strips of bacon or every hot dog I eat, my chances of colorectal cancer goes up another 18%? If so, I probably locked in my cancer a long time ago. That's the magic of compounding and why you should have started saving in your 401k plan when you were 20. So I'm thinking maybe they mean something different. Digging into the detailed monograph, I now know that they mean 50 grams per day. Meanwhile, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's colorectal cancer rate statistic says we each have a 5% chance of contracting colorectal cancer sometime before we become 90 years old. So, if you eat two strips of bacon, Ooh, bacon or a hot dog every day, your odds of colorectal cancer goes from an imperceptible 5% to a massively scary 6%. I don't find those odds very intimidating. The IR hedges more when discussing the odds of getting cancer from red meat, but let's not let that stop us from placing that part of the announcement in context. There is a hypothesis in the nutritionist community that people who eat the most meat lead unhealthy lifestyles in general. In other words, people who eat red meat twice a day are also likely to be smokers, inactive, avoid known cancer, avoid known cancer-fighting foods such as vegetables and fruits, or do other fucked up shit. I have to admit, I found no research that clearly demonstrates this. However, it makes karma sense that if you eat more meat, you're eating less of other stuff. So. Is the already weak link between red meat and cancer a result of eating too much meat, or is it due to too few vegetables and fruits and maybe even whole grains? Finally, there's the context context. That is, the context of what specifically you're eating and how it's prepared. As previously mentioned, red meat and processed meats are very broad categories. It's not very helpful to classify hot dogs and nitrate-free bacon from organic open pen pigs in the same group. In a recent test performed by ClearFood, 15% of the hot dogs tested contained contamination, including unhygienic materials and ingredients not listed in the label. In fact, 2% of the hot dogs tested contained human DNA. Now, don't panic yet. This doesn't mean that you've eaten human body parts. 
ClearFood's test is unable to distinguish the actual source of that human DNA. So it might only be dander, hair, or body fluids, and not fingers, toes, or other chunks of people who, after reading my Lose Weight Slow blog post, took the easy way out and cut off their arms in order to lose weight. Isn't that reassuring? It might not be body parts. It could just be body fluids. Unlike hot dogs, which are made from various scraps of meat and other stuff, bacon is nothing but sliced pork belly that's seasoned, smoked, or cured in a way that's much easier to manage and regulate. Putting bacon and hot dogs in the same category is a false equivalency. This isn't a license to eat all the bacon you want. It's just another consideration. Red meat suffers from the same issue. A hamburger fried using industrial cooking oil on a grill that's cleaned, at most, every shift change is not the same as a piece of lean, organic, grass-fed sirloin beef. And that grass-fed beef is not the same if it's cooked to medium-rare versus well-done. Finally, regardless of how it's cooked, the effect of that beef in your gut is different if it's eaten with mashed potatoes and gravy versus steamed vegetables and olive oil. And now you have the full context. What do you do with it? Here are some suggestions on consuming meat for optimal health. First, avoid processed meats. There's strong evidence that even moderate consumption of processed meats leads to health issues. For clarity, IARC defines processed meat as, quote, meat that has been transformed through salting, curing, fermentation, smoking, or other processes to enhance flavor or improve preservation. It goes on to say, most processed meats contain pork or beef, but processed meats may also contain other red meats, poultry, offal, as in parts of the animal so awful you don't want to know what it really is, or meat byproducts such as blood, bone, and mojo. And the enhancement on awful and the part about mojo, I have to admit I added. Anyway, I prefer my simpler definition. If the meat you eat comes in a package with a list of ingredients, it's processed. This definition casts a wider net than that of the IARC, but by following this guideline, you can be confident that all the human DNA that you consume is by choice and not by accident. Processed meats such as ham or bacon should be used more as flavoring than as the centerpiece of a meal. Second, choose red meat that's raised without antibiotics and hormones. It's best if they've been fed their natural diet, for example, grass-fed cows versus grain-fed. Organic meats usually meet and exceed these criteria. Humanely raised animals suffer from less stress than their factory farmed equivalent. It's believed, but not demonstrated, that the stress hormones released by animals can elicit a stress response by people who eat them. By concentrating your meat consumption on the types that I just described, you'll cut your body's inflammation response. Chronic inflammation is a known cause of several nasty diseases, including cancer. 3. Follow mantra number 3 of the Karma Sense Eating Plan, Eat More Vegetables and Fruits. The micronutrients, fiber, and phytochemicals in vegetables and fruits do wonder to offset the stress and DNA damage that can be associated with consuming red meat. Number four, avoid cooking meat until it's charred. Some people find those grill marks on a juicy steak desirable. They are tasty, but they're nasty. You can undo some of the damage caused by consuming heterocyclic amines, which is what show-offs call those char marks, by eating more vegetables and fruits, especially cruciferous vegetables, marinating the meat before cooking, or cooking with certain spices such as rosemary. I'll do a grilling podcast and blog when the season approaches, 
And I know it's always grilling season in Florida, and a lot of you folks are in Florida, but you guys are just going to have to wait. You always make us wait to figure out who's going to be the next president. Five, don't take iron supplements unless you're sure you're anemic. Red meat is an excellent source of iron, but excess iron is toxic. And six, take good care of your gut. Don't ingest antibiotics unless absolutely necessary. Eat plenty of probiotic foods like yogurt, unpasteurized pickles, sauerkraut, kimchi, miso, and tempo, and feed those friendly gut bacteria by eating prebiotic foods. Once again, a balanced mix of vegetables and fruits should serve you here. And that's the story of who, IARC, processed meat, red meat, and cancer. But there's a flip side to that story. We're going to talk about that next. Recently, an old pal of mine and yours, Larry Osman, Oz, Schlumpia King, Chief Frying Officer and Special Guest on Foodcast Episode 9, a very special episode, asked me a question. You see, yet another thing that makes Oz and me similar is that he likes to experiment with different eating styles. And recently, he decided he'd give veganism a try. I can't say it was a result of listening to Remy and me on episode 18 or my boy Sam on episode 22, because I know he didn't. Yet. Right, Oz? But I like to think that's the case, because that's the kind of stuff that helps me sleep at night. That, and all the broccoli. Anyway, Oz was wondering about any nutrient deficiencies he might want to look out for. And I can't say it enough. Meat is not an essential part of the human diet, and you can mostly ignore the guidelines from the previous segment if you only eat meat a couple times a month or less. However, meat is an excellent source of some essential nutrients. If you tend to severely change your diet away from meat, make sure you compensate by considering the following micronutrients. First, there's vitamin B12. B12 is a water-soluble vitamin that's essential to your circulatory and nervous system, that is, your brain and your blood. Your body's designed for consistent intake of B12. Animal-based food is the best source. And if all you're doing is reducing red meat, but you're still eating poultry, fish, dairy, and or eggs, you should be fine. If you're going vegan, food sources for B12 include nori seaweed and tempeh. There are also B12 supplements made from bacteria that's secreted as part of their own circle of life. You're not really eating any bacteria, you're just eating their byproducts. And note that some B12 supplements are created with so-called pseudo-vitamin B12, which is not really absorbed by the body but adds a lovely and costly golden color to your urine. Always check the sources of your supplement. The next nutrient isn't really a micronutrient, it's a macronutrient, and that's protein. And in the context of nutrition, protein is a blanket term for 20 different amino acids. Animals and a finite set of plants-based foods offer the full spectrum of 20. If you're only reducing your red meat intake and compensating with poultry, fish, dairy, and eggs, you're covered. Vegans need to eat plenty of complementary foods. That is, beans and rice, peanut butter on whole grain toast, and include some of the plant-based foods that carry the entire amino acid roster, such as quinoa, buckwheat, and soy. The next micronutrient is iron, and red meat contains one of the best sources of iron. It's called heme iron. Heme iron is also a likely contributor to the carcinogenic effect of red meat. Poultry and fish also contain heme iron, but not as much as red meat. It's basically heme iron that makes red meat red. Vegans should be especially watchful of their iron levels. Iron deficiency or anemia is common in vegans. Regardless, 
Never use iron supplements unless directed by a physician. Finally, there's omega-3 fatty acids, and this is the stuff people eat fish for. Omega-3s are essential for brain function, nerve function, managing cholesterol, and inflammation. But if you're eating whole foods versus vegan junk food, cholesterol and inflammation should take care of themselves. As we age, however, brain and nervous function stuff really begins to matter. And there are three types of omega-3s, DHA, EPA, and ALA. DHA and EPA are really only available from animal sources. ALA comes from plant sources, usually seeds or nuts like walnuts, flax seeds, chia seeds of chia pet fame, or hemp seeds. Just ask your kids if you need help with that last one. Your body doesn't really use the ALA. Instead, it converts it into DHA and EPA, and that process isn't very efficient. Consider supplementing here, too. If you can find an omega-3 supplement made from algae or seaweed, those are the best, and also, of course, the most expensive. Just remember, omega-3s become really important when you're older because they fight off dementia. Also, remember that omega-3s are really important as you get older because they fight off dementia. I shared all this information with Oz, and then after I shook him awake, he said, I'm really just doing this to become more healthy and have no problem adjusting it to make it better. What if I added wild-caught seafood to my diet? I hear some bad things about farm-raised. How often would I need to eat seafood in order to get the proper B12, protein, and omega-3 benefits? I'm now hankering for some raw oysters. My advice was to not to worry so much about the protein, He'll get plenty just sticking to a mostly vegan diet, as long as he's not eating a whole lot of processed vegan junk food. B12's a little trickier. While people don't need much B12 in a given day, your body can't store it. And if you've ever taken a multivitamin and then noticed your urine smells of the vitamin and is more yellow than usual, that's your body getting rid of excess vitamin B. On days Oz eats fish, he's getting sufficient amounts of B12. On other days, he'll want to consider taking supplements. Many vegans get their B12 by not cleaning their produce. The bacteria on the produce creates the B12 they need. I don't advise this for most store-bought produce. Spend five minutes watching other people go about their business in the produce section of your store, and you'll probably agree with me. For omega-3, two servings a week of fish would be great. More could be better, but Oz is onto something with the wild versus farm thing. When you combine contaminants, mercury levels, sustainability, and of course omega-3 content, there's no rule of thumb on which is better, farmed or wild. For example, farmed salmon is usually full of nasty chemicals and generally gross due to poor hygiene. Arctic char is very similar to salmon, but is easy to farm in a healthy and sustainable way. So, here comes a list of fish that are highest in omega-3s with a suggestion on whether to go wild versus farm based on optimal ratings when considering sustainability and general disgusting factors. In some cases, the geographic source is important, so I emphasize those. Get the following fish wild. Alaskan salmon, Atlantic mackerel, sardines, sable, also known as black cod, anchovies, albacore tuna, Pacific halibut, rockfish, for farmed, you can go with Arctic char, rainbow trouts, mussels, U.S. raised catfish, and since Oz has a hankering for oysters, he'll be glad to know that either farmed or wild are good sources of omega-3s, sustainable and not gross, unless you buy them at a truck stop. In the end, this advice worked perfect for Oz. 
He could take some steps towards a diet that'll make him feel better, and he won't have to worry about the many temptations that come with making schlumpia, since schlumpia can support most any dietary lifestyle. Whether it's potato and onion for vegans, kasha varnishkas with or without schmaltz for the flexitarian, lox and eggs for the pescatarian, or brisket for the omnivore, all your bases are covered with schlumpia. And speaking of bases, we're rounding third in this episode and heading for home. Not all the chazerai is about my continuing obsession with meat-eating lifestyles versus meat and animal product-avoiding lifestyles. I've accumulated several listener and reader questions over the week, and the answers are of general interest, and they have nothing to do with that. So, in no particular order, J.F. writes, What's your take on the apple cider vinegar rage? Does it aid weight loss or toxin removal, or is it crap? Well, Jay, the short answer is that if it's something you enjoy doing, there's no harm unless you have stomach ulcers, or if your doctor recommends against it. Also, the acid can cause tooth decay, so take care of them choppers. The main upside is that there's convincing research that increases glucose sensitivity and lowers blood glucose levels, which, living in a world full of pre-diabetes and type 2 diabetes, it's something many people care about. But as with most foods, the fact that they have these beneficial properties doesn't mean that if you do a lot of it, you get more benefit from it. So you're being perceptive when you call it a rage, and your bullcrap detector is blaring. It isn't some magic bullet for diabetes, weight loss, or anything else. And if there is a telltale symptom of crap nutrition information, it's probably including almost anything with the root word of detox in it. Also, people who are on medicine to control blood sugar, as many diabetics are, need to be careful because you don't want a multiplying effect of reduced blood sugar. The best way to incorporate apple cider vinegar in the diet is by adding it to food. Some people do drink it with various concoctions of water, herbs, spices, and or Red Bull. And in those cases, daily dosages should be no more than from 1 to 2 teaspoons, or 5 to 10 milliliters, up to 1 to 2 tablespoons, or 15 to 30 milliliters. That would be daily. If you don't enjoy it and you still want the benefits, again, try to incorporate any vinegar into your meals. Apple cider vinegar is high in the desirable substance, acetic acid, but other vinegars have it too, just not as much. Also, cinnamon has many of the same glucose control-related qualities. Bottom line is, it's a fad with minimal downside and potential upside. Most of that upside is around the glucose-controlling qualities, and the research for that is pretty good. But a lot of the other qualities of losing weight and fighting cancer and those sorts of things, there's promising research, but it isn't reliable enough for skeptics like us to have a high confidence in it. If you like it, and it makes you feel better, continue. If you don't like it, you're not going to miss it if you give it up. And thanks for asking. Great question, Jay. Diabetes. Diabetes. DJT asks, Why do you always tell stuff in both American units and metric units? This is America. Stop wasting our time. You're right, DJT. I'm in America, as is most of the audience. But the Foodcast audience includes people from all over the world, including most of Europe, the Philippines, no doubt due to past business relationships, and then some places I can't figure out, such as Myanmar, Saudi Arabia, and Argentina. In fact, after America, my second biggest audience is in Germany, with Belgium being third. They both beat out Canada, which would be surprising if not for 
You know, Canadians. So I like to make sure my knowledge bombs translate. And if anyone in those countries want to organize around some on-site karma sense tomfoolery, I'm game. The next question comes from Bruce. Recently, I posted an article about why the fear-mongering about eating bread is over-the-top silly. It was a long article, and Bruce asked me to distill it to its finer points. Well, Bruce, I plan an upcoming episode entirely focused on bread, but I probably won't get to that until March, and I don't want you to go that long without a grilled cheese sandwich if you don't want to. So, here's a quick response. The saying goes that man does not live on bread alone, and while man or woman may not want to live by bread alone, both could. Your namesake, Dr. Bruce German, who I could only assume listens to the foodcast because he's German, is also a food scientist at UC Davis. He's quoted as saying, quote, If I gave you a bag of flour and water, you could live on it for a while, but eventually you'd die. But if you take that same bag of flour and water and bake it into bread, you can live indefinitely, unquote. In fact, in many ways, the invention of bread is one of the first things in the food world that helped create civilized society. Without farmers, millers, and bakers and consumers cooperating, bread wouldn't exist. If this doesn't get you all hamotzi lechem min hararetzt, the Jewish blessing over bread, I don't know what will. Bread gets its bad rap because it's mostly carbohydrates, and it has... But Foodcast listeners know I don't subscribe to the healthy lifestyle militia notion that either carbs or gluten are bad for most people. The trick here is, what is bread? It's a mixture of flour, salt, and water. Sometimes a few more ingredients are added for flavor or consistency, including eggs, seeds, and grains of various type. All of those are pretty wholesome ingredients. Today's modern store-bought bread consists of about 20 ingredients, most of which are there to condition the dough for texture, preserve the bread so it survives a nuclear holocaust, or sweeten it so it's more addictive and to hide the subflavor of preservatives and conditioners. And then there's a bunch of synthetic vitamins added to make up for the fact that all the real vitamins were removed when making the flour. In my opinion, that's not bread. That's a chemistry experiment that includes bread as one of its reactants. Bruce, bread can be part of a healthy lifestyle. If you can buy fresh bread from a real bakery, you'll be happier and probably eat less because it'll be so much more satisfying. If you do use store-bought bread, aim for versions that have the fewest ingredients. Also, make a target that for every 50 calories in a slice, there's at least one gram of fiber. People with diabetes need to be especially mindful of the sugar content. Less important, but still a consideration, is the glycemic index of bread. You won't find this index on a bread label. If I can find a worthwhile link that has that info on different types of brands of bread, I'll put it on the show notes. In fact, for any of the stuff I talk about, you'll find great resources on the show notes at karmasensewellness.com. But back to glycemic index. Rarely do you eat bread without other ingredients. If your sandwich topping and spreads include protein and fat, the glycemic index begins to become moot. That means peanut butter, cheese, or even regular butter is good, Jelly and, sadly, Nutella, not so good. So go ahead, Bruce. Enjoy a little bread. But avoid this bread, no matter how much it's a want you. Maybe I'm 
that will bring another one-man show episode of the Foodcast to a close. The interesting thing about the word Chazerai is that its root is the Yiddish word for pig. I got this episode done early because I'll be traveling on Friday to meet up with one of my future guests, and it all revolves around pigs. You may have noted a long-term theme, leitmotif, or story arc, if you will, in the subject matter of the Foodcast. In my first episode, with a guest, Taylor Hudnall, the butcher, I disclosed my issues with eating pork, pig meat. I thought wild boar would be a healthy and sustainable choice, and Taylor helped to confirm that. But the butcher shop at Let's Meet on the Avenue isn't suited for whole animal butchering, and with my unnatural, irrational, and insatiable curiosity about food feeling unquenched, I'm now heading out to West Virginia to actually butcher my own hog. I figure that to really be at peace with the eating of animals, I should get intimate with as much of the farm-to-table process as I can. Later, we'll have other episodes where I go to a farm and work with some hogs being raised for food. My personal goal is to see if I still believe meat is a healthy, sustainable, and humane dietary option once I fully experience what it takes. In the Foodcast, we've explored various eating styles on the health, humanity, and sustainability spectrum. From a heart patient who went to the meat and veg only style of paleo, through to a vegan who avoids all animal products. And of course, my boy Sam, who's a vegetarian who eats dairy and eggs, and my pal Oz, who's trying out pescatarianism. Little by little, we'll also try to find the tipping point when consuming animals is no longer humane. There's a lot of debate about whether eating bivalves are humane, and we already talked a little bit about insects. To me, factory farms are a slam-dunk, inhumane way to raise food. However, just because plants aren't sentient doesn't mean a plant-only diet is humane or sustainable. There's issues there, too, that we'll explore. You can tell, I think a lot about this stuff. And I inflict this on you, the listener, by thinking out loud. Future Foodcast episodes will continue with this theme. We'll cover other stuff too, and since I'm so grateful for you listening to me, I welcome your comments on whether I'm going down an interesting road or becoming repetitive, boring, or preachy. So let me know what you think by either reaching out to me directly or passively submitting reviews, comments, shares, and subscriptions on iTunes. If you don't know how to do that, let me know. I'll help. But for now, have a great day. And remember what your old pal Aretha always says. Oh, yeah.
Hey!